0: Good morning. Um, We're continuing our studies in Acts this morning, and today we come to chapter 17, part 1. If that sounds to you a bit like one of Shakespeare's history plays, then the analogy is not a bad one. Because this passage, while it is just a historical account, in fact has a great deal to teach us about the present. For readers like us who've been soaking in the Acts of the Apostles for many weeks now, these verses tell such a familiar story that it's almost tempting to think that not much happens here. In fact, when I first read these verses through, I thought, thanks a bunch, Jim, a passage where nothing happens. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is that all the essential elements of this are ones that we've read before and are going to read again ere long, and they all happen twice. Just like the Lord of the Rings to the unimaginative reader like myself, these parts of Acts can sometimes seem like a series of journeys interspersed with a series of battles. Oh, really? More of this? So in today's reading, nothing will unfold before us that's strikingly different from stories that we've already heard and will hear again before our tale is done. But that is not to say that nothing happens here. Far from it. By the end of the reading, a serious social unrest has broken out in otherwise orderly cities living under the the iron jackboot of the Pax Romana. A group of believers have faced and survived a probable death sentence. Two new churches have been planted 45 miles apart. And Paul is brought face to face with an evil spiritual empire, the pantheon of pagan gods that was Athens. All of these events are hugely significant, not only for those who live through them, but for the whole history of the church in Europe as a whole. But more than that, I think they contain an important secret. So if they strike us with a certain sense of déjà vu, oh yeah, seen it all before, I want to suggest that that's precisely the author's intention, because here we see a repeated pattern which speaks to us clearly down the centuries about Paul's missionary methods. Let's read then Acts 17, verses 1 to 15. Now, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and doubtless other hard-to-pronounce places too, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, and they've come here now also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money, the security from Jason is the rest. They let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learnt that the word was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. In the previous chapter, we read how Paul and Silas were driven on by the Spirit of God and passed virtually without stopping through much of Asia Minor until they came to Philippi. There, God finally permitted them to preach the gospel. First, to the local Jewish community, and then, in a continuation of what we come to know in this church as the the prison hokey-cokey, in, out, in, out, shake it all about. In the local jail, two prisoners and guards, several of whom come to faith. Then after confirming this brand new church, verse 40, they set off on the 100-mile journey to Thessalonica. Now, a couple of places get a mention on the way, difficult to pronounce places. And this may be because the guys did some stuff there as well, which the author, Luke, is not going to tell us about. You have to imagine that if if you're a resident of Apollonia or Amphipolis and you're reading this, you might be a bit miffed to be left out if Paul and Silas did miracles there and stuff. But whatever did happen or didn't there, we need not speculate because Luke wants to draw our attention instead to what happened next. And the big question for us, as readers who've heard it all before, must be why? Why does he want us, especially to notice, what happened at Thessalonica and Berea? I think the answer is because it, uh, it typifies so precisely Paul's ministry and his missionary <coughs> methods. And here I feel obliged to mention an excellent book by Roland Allen, which is a cornerstone of Vineyard's teaching on mission. It's called... Missionary methods, St. Paul's or ours? Question mark. It's a challenging read, as you can imagine. But to the passage. The principles I want to pick out in the pattern of Paul's preaching are, as in the perorations of any purposeful preacher, a pentateuch of pertinent points, preferably presaged with P. <laughs> These are proclamation. Persuasion, percolation, persecution, and pressing on. First, proclamation. As we see in verse 3, Paul's primary message was a a proclamation of Jesus Christ. Likewise in Berea in verse 11, what other word could it be that they received so eagerly? It must have been that same proclamation of Jesus as outlined in verse 3. But for some of us, perhaps that raises more questions than answers what precisely was the gospel as Paul and Silas initially preached it? Was it just that very bare-bones, stripped-back version that Jesus and his disciples preached in the gospels? Simply, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or was it something more dense and theologically profound? It's hard to know. But it's likely that Paul's initial preaching to these Jewish believers concentrated on the idea that the savior they've been waiting for, for so many centuries, has now actually come. And we know that, as usual, this was accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders. How do I know? Because writing to these same people in 1 Thessalonians 1 verses four and five, he says, and we know God has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. It's a case, once again, of what the disciples prayed for in Acts 4, that we may speak the word with boldness while you, God, stretch out your hands to heal and that many mighty miracles and signs be done by the power of your holy servant, Jesus. This proclamation then was a massive wake-up call for the Jewish community in Thessalonica. Not only do Paul and Silas have a startling new message, but they present it in a startling, and new way. A few weeks back, if you were here, I spoke about the change management curve, uh, how Peter used those time-worn principles on a particular occasion, and how it can help us, too, in our thinking about how we present the gospel to people. There's no time to go over all that again, so if you're interested, do get the podcast. Suffice it to say that in terms of the change management curve, this type of preaching, this proclamation, this this shocking uh, proclamation that Paul and Silas are making here, is good for getting people to move from the first phase, denial, into the second, which if you remember is not acceptance or even exploration, but just resistance. This being so, it's by no means unexpected that there is here, as so often in the past and in our own experience, eventually there's a split between those who are willing to move along the change curve and those who just explode in anger and violence. What this very direct kind of preaching does not allow, however, is a reaction that just goes, meh. If, like me, you're old and therefore unfamiliar with the word meh, you may find it helpful to know that it's a direct translation of the French word, (laughs) bof. Proclamation of this sort cannot be answered with a shrug. It pushes people out of their comfortable neutrality in denial. Like a foreign army, army invading a neutral state, it forces the people there to take sides. It is an inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of darkness. And inevitably, it wakes up resistance. For more on that, please listen to Morag's talk on the subject in, uh, of the kingdom of God in our evening s- series. It's uh, a recent podcast. So much for proclamation. <clears throat> What needs to follow that proclamation, that challenge, and it does in Paul's missionary method, is point to persuasion. On three consecutive uh, Saturdays, it would be Sundays now, verse 2, as was his custom, exclamation mark, Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now it's worth noticing just a couple of things here. First, he had an advantage that we don't often have when we're witnessing to our neighbors. They already know the scriptures. They already accept the authority of the Bible. There's no point at all in us trying the same trick with people who neither know the Bible nor respect it. They think it's just a bunch of fairy tales. We can do the proclamation part pretty much as Paul and Silas did to get people's attention, but we're going to have to explain it to persuade them in very different ways nowadays. But secondly, whereas it's not our custom to go into synagogues to preach the gospel like Paul invariably did, there is a sense in which we can follow precisely the example that he set for us in doing that. As a well-educated Jew, the synagogue was Paul's home turf. And in the scriptures, he was standing on common ground with his hearers. I think we have to get past this idea of mission with a capital M Necessarily being way outside of our comfort zones Sharing the gospel is hard enough without our going to unfamiliar places among people who aren't like us to reason with them In a way that's entirely foreign to their way of thinking Many of us I suspect believe that in our heart of hearts That we have to go to the equivalent of darkest Africa if we ever want to be worthy disciples of Jesus And because we don't do that, we must be bad Christians, so there's no point even trying. Well, there's a couple of reasons why that kind of thinking is ridiculous. In the first place, Africa is now sending missionaries to darkest Scotland, never mind the other way around. (laughs) Uh, And in the second, this isn't Paul's missionary method. So why should it be ours? Yes, he went to one foreign country after another, but what did he always do there? He went to the people like him who thought like him, who spoke the same language. If you're a Scottish rugby supporter, you will know how quickly the rugby world in every nation on earth opens its doors to a man in a rugby top and a kilt. My brother-in-law always goes to Paris for the France game, and he says that more more often than not, he, he simply can't buy a drink, such as the welcome and hospitality for a couple of guys in kilts. Well, I think Paul is doing the same kind of thing here. Was he went into the synagogues and preached to the Jews there. He was, doing, he was going where he was accepted, where he was understood, rather than trying to reach directly communities that would regard him as an outsider, an in In our own communities, we have a right to be heard in a way that simply isn't true elsewhere. And I think the tragedy is how many Christian communities are effectively cut off from the natural communities, where their members would naturally gravitate. My old friend, Stewie, whom some of you have met, he uh, took over from me leading the Alpha courses in our previous church when we moved to plant this one. And one Sunday, he was giving the Alpha pitch in the Sunday church notices. When he got to the bit where he had to say, so bring your non-Christian friends along, someone piped up, there is always one, isn't there, a full day, what if I don't have any Christian friends? (laughs) And Stewie answered, he was trying to put the words back in his mouth as he did, but he just blurted it out. He said, if you don't have any non-Christian friends, what on earth are you doing in here? We all have natural communities, backgrounds, connections. And Paul's missionary method says, go there first. But it doesn't end there. Because point three, there's such a thing as the percolation of the gospel. We immediately see in verse 4, yes, that though Paul went and preached exclusively to his people, they're very quickly joined by other people. In just three weeks, literally a great multitude, it says, of worshipping Greeks. These are the Hellenoi, people who are religiously and culturally totally different from Paul. A great number of them, including quite a few women from the ruling classes, simply fell into the kingdom. Why? There's absolutely no suggestion that Paul and Silas ever went and preached to them. So how did they know to join Paul and Silas? I believe there's an important principle at work here. Paul preached exclusively to people he had a pre-existing connection with. It's worse, isn't it? I mean, it's like Dad did a dance at school. It's embarrassing. (laughs) Uh, The retired pastor does a dance in church. Mm. (laughs) Was that the Lord, by the way, on the the phone? (laughs) Okay. Um, Paul preached exclusively to people that he had a a pre-existing connection with. But each one of those people had their own connections in the broader community. They had people who respected them because they'd been friends or colleagues for years. So even while these guys from the synagogue were still trying to work out what they really thought about this exciting message, even when they were unsure whether they could really believe that the long-awaited hope of their faith had been fulfilled, even then, they were already discussing it at the water cooler in the office, at the school gate, at the shops, in the pub. And because they were in good standing, with what verse 4 calls worshipping Greeks, these in turn listened to them, caught something of their hope, and came to faith. I think that's all I want to say about percolation. It's just something that happens. Even before we understand it ourselves, as we talk to those we're already connected with, the word and spirit of the gospel will simply leak out into our wider community, just like a tiny pinch of yeast leavens a whole bowl of it doesn't matter how badly we express the gospel message. People who love us will be drawn to love Jesus as we are. So through proclamation and persuasion, uh, though proclamation and persuasion should start among our natural peers, the message will inevitably move out through percolation. In this way, it achieves a far greater work than the initial preacher could have done on his own. Point four, persecution. <clears throat> You'll have noticed, perhaps with some unease, that we're still on point four, and we've only reached verse four of 15. Don't worry, I promise we're going to accelerate in just a moment. In verse five, all that resistance we spoke about a moment ago, it finally boils over. I say finally, but this all happened in the space of three weeks. It really didn't take long for this inflammatory message to have a strong negative effect, along with all the undoubted positives. Would you say that persecution necessarily follows the preaching of the gospel? I'm not sure I would, not quite. Because back in Acts 2.46, we read that for a very brief time, a blessed time, the early church in Jerusalem did enjoy favor with all the people. But it didn't last. If you go on witnessing faithfully for Jesus, you'll eventually upset someone. Abraham Lincoln famously said, you can fool all the people some of the time. Some of the people you can fool all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. But if you ask any church planter, they'll tell you it's the same with, um, with pleasing people. Some of the time you seem to be pleasing everybody. Some people are just so lovely that they're always pleased with you, however bad a job you do. But eventually, however faithful you are to the gospel, I want to say especially if you're faithful to the gospel. You will displease somebody. But persecution, which the dictionaries define as cruel and unfair treatment, is not always directly human in nature. When the kingdom of light breaks into the kingdom of darkness, there is normally a backlash. But we should remember that, unlike God, the devil's resources are limited. So if I do right and find myself under the pump, as they say, then somewhere, some of my brothers and sisters are getting away scot-free. Hurrah! The kingdom goes forward. Here in Thessalonica, the persecution is very human, as we read in verses 5 to 9. But that's not always the case. When you are under spiritual attack, which I would say is always spiritual counterattack, in fact, my advice would be, A, recognize the fact and rejoice that the kingdom is advancing somewhere else. B, keep praying. C, keep together, paying extra attention to relationships. D, keep well fed and rested. E, keep alert, taking extra care to do everything safely, from operating chainsaws to crossing the road. Serious. F, keep pressing ahead with the task that God has laid before you. Make the hard phone calls. Make the difficult decisions. Stretch yourself in issues of faith, because God's favor often rests on us when we least sense it. Jesus saves us in trouble, as we were just singing, not from trouble. And that brings us rather neatly, though I didn't plan it this way, to our final P this morning. Number five is pressing on. There's no sense in verse 10 of Paul and Silas just hanging around unwilling to move. That would have put themselves and their new friends in jeopardy. Not for them, that bloody-minded attitude of, I've started, so I'll finish if it kills me. I've started, I'll finish if it kills you. No, it was time to go, so they went. The test for them was not along the line of staying and suffering. It was a question of, whether they were prepared to leave and trust God to look after the precious work that they had started. I do wish everyone who followed Jesus would learn to move on when they're done. Can you plant a church in three weeks? Sure, I couldn't, but these guys could. They just leave Jason and company to get on with it, and on they go to Berea. And there, as the intelligent reader will already have spotted, they do dot, 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 exactly the same as they did at Thessalonica, and with exactly the same results. Once again, we see proclamation and persuasion in the synagogue, verses 10 and 11. Once again, the percolation of the gospel worked exactly as it did in Thessalonica, verse 12. Once again, verse 13, persecution follows them. And once again, verse 14, since Paul seems to be the main irritant in the situation, he alone moves on straight away. And leaves them to it. Having said which, it's fair to guess that there was a little bit of time for training and and help from Silas and Timothy. But just in passing, notice something with me, if you will. The fact that Paul's guides were only supposed to take him to the coast, but they actually took him all the way to Athens. That is exceeding their brief by about three times what they were supposed to do. Three times the distance, three times the time. Why? Why? It's impossible to be sure because we're not told. But I bet it was because they found him such an enthralling traveling companion. There's a thing we do in the vineyard which has to do with Wimber's principle that the best things in life are caught not taught. And that is if you ever get a chance to give one of your heroes of faith a lift to the airport and take it with both hands. In fact, offer to drive him to London um, rather than put him on the plane. <coughs> it might just change your life. Or well, perhaps that's what you're afraid of. Naughty ex-pastor, get back in your box. <laughs> so eventually in verse 15, we find Paul at Athens saying goodbye to his traveling companions. But once again, he doesn't want to twiddle his thumbs for too long, taking in the sights of Athens, although even then, they were well worth seeing. No. As soon as he gets there, he's itching to get to work again. Even as he parts from his guides, he asks them to send Timothy and Silas to join him ASAP. What follows? Well, don't miss next week's exciting episode. These 15 verses, though, are in the Bible for a reason. They contain a repeated pattern, which is not presented to us by any accident. In writing Acts, Luke is not seeking to give us a textbook on what the church should always look like in every country and every age, or how mission should always be done. As he says in the introduction, he just wants to tell the reader what happened. But after reading this book through several times and teaching through it once before, I've noticed often and often that he's always careful to recount in detail the things that he thinks important, often repeating them. So I return to the question posed on the cover of Roland (laughs) Roland Allen's excellent book, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Hours. I hope we have seen how Paul always went first to his own people group, proclaiming the gospel and explaining it in terms they could understand and backing up his words with miracles. I hope we've seen that by so doing, he was starting a chain reaction of percolation. Then I hope we've seen the kind of persecution um, that's almost always bound to follow if we keep advancing in the kingdom of God. But that's nothing to worry about and nor should it stop us. And finally, I hope we've seen the thing that I find the most remarkable of all, that once the job was done, even if it took just a couple of weeks, Paul and Silas pressed on to the next city, trusting God to look after the infant churches that they left in their wake. That's really all I want to say about the passage this morning, except this. We might think, the way Luke speaks of the church in Berea, that that would be the one that would really take off. Perhaps the one in Thessalonica, where the first responders were not so noble, as we read in verse 11, as the good old Bereans. Perhaps they just sink under the weight of the persecution there and disappear completely, as a number of vineyard plants in Scotland have done over the years. The scriptural record shows this is not the case. One Thessalonians opens with compliments on their work of faith and labor of love, calling them an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Two Thessalonians opens with compliments on their their growing in faith and love, even under persecution, saying that Paul even boasts about them to the other churches. So, good job leading ladies. Good job Jason and Chums. Good job also Paul and Silas, who knew when they'd done enough and pressed on to what was next. There's a lot of vineyard churches in the UK and Ireland that are well established, but their planters and pastors are coming to the end of their working lives and the pastor becomes a past it <laughs> if you love this vineyard movement as I do you'll remember those churches in your prayers praying that the Lord will raise up younger leaders who can take their place not every church is fortunate enough to have a couple like Jim and Rachel waiting in the wings to take over not every church has wise and generous trustees like ours budgeted for sufficient salary to enable a good long handing over period. Frankly, not every church will transition as well and as easily as we have. But I pray they all may. Amen. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your word in the bible thank you that everything in it is is there for our instruction and edification that builds us up thank you that in these verses we see someone doing something in a different time in a different world really and yet we can learn so much from what he did thank you for the leading of your holy spirit Through your word and through prophecy, through guiding the inclination of our hearts. And Lord, I pray for any here this morning who've heard a call to pastoral ministry. I ask that your hand will rest on them right now. And encourage their hearts. And show them the way forward. If that's you, I'd like to invite you especially to come forward for prayer in a moment. But also if you're, uh, if you're sick in body, mind or spirit, would you come and we'll pray for you. If you're just sensing the call of God to something else, or if something in the message or the, or the worship has stirred you, or just if, if you sense your own need or your desire to take a step forward, I invite you to to come and receive some prayer now. So as the music strikes up, just, just come.